You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when Yahweh spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab, the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests whom he ordained to serve as priests. But Nadab and Abihu died before Yahweh when they offered unauthorized fire before Yahweh in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of Aaron their father. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, and keep guard over the people of Israel, as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel, instead of every firstborn who opens the womb Among the people of Israel, the Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am Yahweh. And Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, List the sons of Levi by fathers' houses and by clans. Every male from a month old and upward you shall list. So Moses listed them according to the word of Yahweh, as he was commanded. And these were the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon and Kohath and Merari. And these are the names of the sons of Gershon by their clans, Libni and Shimei, and the sons of Kohath by their clans, Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel and the sons of Merari by their clans, Mahli and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites by their fathers' houses. To Gershon belonged the clan of the Libnites and the clan of the Shimeites. These were the clans of the Gershonites. Their listing according to the number of all the males from a month old and upward was 7,500. The clans of the Gershonites were to camp behind the tabernacle on the west, with Eliasaph, the son of Lael, as chief of the father's house of the Gershonites. And the guard duty of the sons of Gershon in the tent of meeting involved the tabernacle, the tent with its covering, the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the hangings of the court, the screen for the door of the court that is around the tabernacle, and the altar and its cords, all the service connected with these. To Kohath, belonged the clan of the Amramites, and the clan of the Isharites, and the clan of the Hebronites, and the clan of the Uzielites. These are the clans 
of the Kohathites, according to the number of all the males from a month old and upward, there were 8,600, keeping guard over the sanctuary. The clans of the sons of Kohath were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle, with Elizaphan, the son of Uziel, as chief of the father's house of the clans of the Kohathites. And their guard duty involved the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the vessels of the sanctuary with which the priests minister, and the screen. All the service connected with these, and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, was to be chief over the chiefs of the Levites, and to have oversight of those who kept guard over the sanctuary. To Merari belonged the clan of the Mahalites, and the clan of the Mushites. These are the clans of Merari. Their listing, according to the number of all the males from a month old and upward, was 6,200. And the chief of the father's house of the clans of Merari was Zuriel, the son of Abihel. They were to camp on the north side of the tabernacle. And the appointed guard duty of the sons of Merari involved the frames of the tabernacle, the bars, the pillars, the bases, and all their accessories. All the service connected with these. Also the pillars around the court with their bases and pegs and cords, those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east, before the tent of meeting toward the sunrise, were Moses and Aaron and his sons guarding the sanctuary itself to protect the people of Israel. And any outsider who came near was to be put to death. All those listed among the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron listed at the commandment of Yahweh by clans, all the males from a month old and upward, were twenty-two thousand. And Yahweh said to Moses, List all the firstborn males of the people of Israel from a month old and upward, taking the number of their names. And you shall take the Levites for me. I am Yahweh, instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the people of Israel. So Moses listed all the firstborn among the people of Israel, as Yahweh commanded him and all the firstborn males, according to the number of names, from a month old and upward, as listed, were 22,273. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine. I am Yahweh. And as the redemption price for the 273 of the firstborn of the people of Israel over and above the number of the male Levites, you shall take five shekels per head. You shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel of twenty geras, and give the money to Aaron and his sons as the redemption price for those who are over. So Moses took the redemption money from those who were over and above those redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the people of Israel, he took the money. 1,365 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. And Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons, according to the word of Yahweh, as Yahweh commanded Moses. (laughs) 
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 619 of this podcast. Today is Tuesday, May 16th, 2023, and that was Numbers chapter 3 in the Old Testament of our Bibles, talking about the sons of Aaron, the duties of the tribe of Levi, the Levites, as we also call them, redemption of the firstborn. And again, as with Numbers chapter 2, we get this unavoidable conclusion in reading about who's going to camp where and who's going to do what, that God is a God of order. God is not a God of chaos, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14. God is a God of order. And, and not you know, not just order. <clears throat> like we think order and we think, oh, we're going to tell people what to do, right? We think orders, but how much of our sense of order is arbitrary and it comes from a place of people just telling others what to do or just putting things where they put them just to feel a sense of control and sometimes not actually putting things in the right place, sometimes not actually telling people what to do that is the right thing to do. We say order in our day, and I think most Americans at least have something of a recoiling. Not all, but most do because we don't like to be told what to do and we don't like to be told where to put things and we don't like to be told to tidy up or clean up or stay over there. But there's really no getting around somebody needing to put things in order. You need to have somebody making decisions. You have to have someone saying, here's how it's going to be. You can't have an organization without organization, (laughs) right? You can't have Liberty, actually, interestingly enough, without order. And part of the proof of this is even the very idea of having a constitution. So roughly a quarter of a millennium ago, in 1776, there was this little piece of paper that was written, debated over, voted on, and then ultimately approved and signed, and copied, and sent out, saying, we are declaring ourselves an independent nation. The United States of America is its own separate country, its own independent country, and we are breaking away from King George and the British Empire. We're going to rule ourselves from here on. And the reasons were given in this document. Not only what are we doing, but here's why we're doing it. We're breaking away And what did these reasons have in common? What was the common denominator? We are not going to take our orders from King George anymore or the British representatives sent, typically officials, governors, soldiers. We're not going to take our orders from them because they are creating more disorder by their orders. They are destabilizing our life, our liberty, our pursuit of happiness here in the new world. And so in order to have better order, we are going to be our own self-governing people. We're going to decide what is best to do, how best to order ourselves 
so as to maximize our liberty. But we wanted everybody to know. We want to make it a general announcement out of a decent respect for the opinions of mankind. We want to give our reasons. You can say, on the one hand, liberty at the utmost would not require any reasons, would not require any decent respect for the opinions of mankind. But then that wouldn't get you very far. You would very quickly find that some other crown, some other king, would see your people, your country, and decide that he would tell you what you're doing from here on out. He would give the orders from here on out. Not just the laws and the judging of the laws by extension, not typically directly, but by extension through proxies, through appointed representatives of the king, but he would also provide the protection. Overseeing you as a people, he would in turn require something as payment. Or else why would some foreign king want to take an interest in your colonies? For that matter, why did King George order that troops be sent and ships be sent to try and hold on to these colonies, except that he was going to get something out of it, or the British people back in the home country would get something out of it. Well, so also, right? So also here in Numbers chapter three, we've got this idea of God ordering the people of Israel. And in chapter three in particular, he's ordering the Levites and the sons of Aaron and the various distinct subfamilies within the tribe of Levi. And he's telling them, as he did with all of the tribes, he's telling them where they're going to camp and who their leaders are and what their duties are. And what you'll note is in the previous chapter, we didn't see this level of specificity regarding the other tribes. We didn't see God getting down into okay, now there's this subgroup and this subgroup and this subgroup, and here's what each of you are going to do. But what does he say about the Levites? He says, the Levites are mine. So Israel is his, but if you zoom in on one of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi, Levi is especially God's in a sense. And so as much as he ordered all 12 tribes, because this is his people, they are going to serve him, He is being even more specific the more he claims the tribe of Levi. He's going to say, here's specifically what I want you to do. Here's specifically where I want you to be. And any outsiders of the people of Israel who cross this line are to be put to death. Guard your part of the camp. Guard it and make sure that nobody comes in. And if they do come in anyways put them to death. Now, why would somebody come into the camp of the Levites? Why would somebody approach and cross that boundary, particularly when God gets all the more specific rather than less with the Levites? A possible reason is someone might do that just because they were told not to. Well, now, because you've told me not to, I really want to do it just to prove that I'm in charge. And sometimes that's appropriate you might say, between people, just to make sure that you're not sending the wrong signals and also to put the other person on notice. If they're trying to order you about 
and they really don't have the authority to be telling you to do what they're telling you to do, sometimes it's important to put them on notice and say, well, now just because you told me to do that thing, now I don't want to do that thing because you're not in charge. You are not actually my head. You are not actually my leader. You do not have authority over me to be ordering me around the way that you are. But God does have the authority to tell Israel what to do. He does have the authority to tell the Levites what to do. And somebody's saying, well, I'm going to just do this thing anyways, even though you told me not to, because I want to prove that I'm in charge. Why that's so serious is because that person is really mounting a rebellion against God himself. And so you could say, well, what's the big deal about crossing into this part of the camp? It's important symbolically, spiritually, psychologically, socially. It's extraordinarily important because God said to not to. And if you do it anyways, just to prove that you're actually in charge of you, you're going to lead others in that as well. And then it spirals out of control increasingly. God is not going to put up with that. He is not tolerating that. And if you say, well, that's not fair. From whence comes this idea of fairness? Where is it written that we get to sit in judgment over God as to what is and is not fair? I don't recall seeing that anywhere. But we come with the assumption, with the preconceived notion of what is fair, what is reasonable, what is proportional to the text. And again, I say, we need to be getting our idea of fairness from the biblical text, from God. Let God tell us what is fair, what is proportional, and let that recalibrate our understanding instead of the other way around. But moving on, today being Tuesday, the... Day before yesterday was Mother's Day, and I'll read for you The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, a poem by William Ross Wallace. Even though it's been a couple of days, we don't just honor our parents one day a year. So it might not be Mother's Day, but I'm still going to read this poem. Blessing on the hand of woman, angels guard her strength and grace in the cottage palace hovel. Oh, no matter where the place. Would that never storms assailed it, rainbows ever gently curled, for the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Infancy's the tender fountain. Power may with beauty flow. Mothers first to guide the streamlet, from them souls unresting grow. Growing on for good or evil, sunshine streamed or darkness hurled, For the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Women, how divine your mission here upon our natal sod. Keep, oh, keep the young heart open, always to the breath of God. All true trophies of the ages are from mother's love impearled. For the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Blessings on the hand of women, fathers, sons, and daughters cry, and the sacred song is mingled with the worship of the sky. Mingled where no tempest darkens, rainbows evermore are curled, for the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Now, what does all of that mean? It's a charming poem. What does it mean? What it means is that mothers have such a impact on the formation of 
personality, character, temperament in their babies. In the first several months, the first formative years, as you train up this little child for good or for ill, you are setting them on a path to either a good life, a blessed life full of happy things, or you are setting them on the path of frustration, consternation, strife, poverty, listlessness. The hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world in some sense is a proof that who orders decides what kind of liberty there is. So for instance, my wife, Lauren, has given birth to eight children, which now reside in our house here in Greeley, Colorado. Eight children, a ninth is due. We don't know whether this is a boy or a girl we're expecting in November, but eight children so far, each of them different, each of them with their own unique personality, their own temperament. Broadly speaking, they're each different. And yet what we, my wife and I, but especially my wife, as I've worked and been out of the house, out bringing home bacon, winning the bread, my wife in particular being the one to tell them yes and no and come over here and go over there and let's do this now and here you can have that. My wife telling them what she has told them in their life to this point has a huge impact on who they have become to this point and who they will be when they launch out into the world on their own. And that's a sobering thought. It's not just mothers. It's fathers too. It certainly is fathers, whether by our presence or our absence, our engagement or disengagement, we also have that influence on our children. But think with me about wanting your child to be free. Nobody should want their child to be a slave. That is not the mark of good parenting. What do you hope your child will be someday? A slave. Nobody says that. What do we hope for our children? If we love our children, if we want good for them, we hope that they will grow up getting a good education so that they are well-formed, they have good character, they have a good reputation, they have good relationships, they have a good future, they have profitable work that they can do that brings honor to themselves and to their family, that brings a benefit to the people around them, that they are a joy to know. Those are the kinds of things that we hope for our children, that they would be free to have and to do and to be. And yet all of that, every bit of it informs what we say yes to for them and what we say no to for them. It informs how we order their childhoods. It absolutely does. But briefly, might I suggest that it also informs how we order our children's education, their upbringing, their discipline, their influences, their relationships, before they have any idea that they are being ordered by their mother and their father. It also affects if somebody tells us we know better what's good for your child than you do. Either A, somebody tells us that and we say, well, yeah, you know, you probably do. I'll just let you make the decisions from here on out. Or 
we say, uh, yeah, no thanks. Uh, this is my son, my daughter. Thanks, but no thanks. But in this country, in the United States of America, be it known <laughs> that for decades, for generations now, for about a century, roughly, a progressive and very Prussian model of public education has predominated and has been responsible for the cultivation of most American minds for multiple generations. This has been the case. And somebody could say, well, public schools, Garrett, community schools, uh, those have been a feature since much, much longer. American history is full of community schools, public schools after a fashion. And I say, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the particular mindset with which the job, the task of educating children is undertaken. It's planned and then executed. The particular mindset, the particular philosophy that we have right now is about a century old, and it is progressive. In fact, that's what you call it. It's the progressive model of public education. It comes down to us from John Dewey and others who got it from the Prussians. The Prussian Empire was the precursor to what we would know and be more familiar with, the German state, Germany, if you will. Prussia was a major player in European politics, known for impressive armies and an impressive industrious economy, known the world over for great universities, great institutes of higher learning, high levels of accomplishment. And the Prussian model was instituted based on that hope for, that expectation of good things. But there was more to it. And there's always more to it. If John Dewey and those other intellectuals, academics, philosophers, as they styled themselves, if those men about a century ago looked at Prussia and they said, it seems like they've got it figured out. Maybe we should pattern our education system in the U.S. after what they're doing. If we want to be competitive, if we want our children to be competitive, if we want our country to be strong, if we want our country to be capable of standing on its own two feet and maintaining independence and American liberty on the world stage, maybe we need to do what the Prussians are doing. But then what happened? World War One and World War Two proved that there are some major flaws. There are some major problems with the Prussian model of education. And I think a lot of Americans are completely ignorant of that fact, but we see the effects. We see that training our children to be obedient slaves of the state, unquestioning slaves of the state and of the consensus of our fellow citizens as it is delivered to us, as we're told the consensus has been arrived at, training our children to be slaves is having a deleterious effect over time. It has eroded the character, the competence, the quality of the American mind. And yet, think with me for a moment back to the poem by William Ross Wallace. Who is William Ross Wallace? Well, born 1819. He passed away 1881. He was an American poet with Scots roots. He was best known for writing that poem I read for you. He was born in Lexington, Kentucky in 1819. 
the same place my wife was born, actually. Kentucky, that is. His father was a Presbyterian preacher who died when Wallace was an infant. Now, that's interesting. It's interesting, for one thing, that his father was a Scots Presbyterian. It's interesting for another thing that he was basically raised by his mother without a father in the home. If his father passed away, that's not a mark against his father, I would presume. But nevertheless, William Ross Wallace grows up to write this poem, praising mothers, in part, I would guess, because he was raised by his mother. Wallace was educated at Indiana University and Hanover College, Indiana, and studied law in Lexington, Kentucky. In 1841, he moved to New York City, where he practiced law and at the same time engaged in literary pursuits. Perdita, a poem, was his first work published in the Union magazine. It attracted favorable criticism and was followed by Albin, 1848, A Poetical Romance, and Meditations in America, 1851. Other poems that attained popularity include The Sword of Bunker Hill, 1861, A National Hymn, Keep Step with the Music of the Union, 1861, The Liberty Bell, 1862, and his most famous poem, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle is the Hand That Rules the World, 1865, a poem praising motherhood. He contributed to Godey's Ladies Book, Harper's Magazine, Harper's Weekly, The New York Ledger, and the Louisville Daily Journal, William Cullen Bryant, said of his writings, they are marked by a splendor of imagination and an affluence of diction which show him the born poet. Edgar Allan Poe, a friend of Wallace, referred to him as one of the very noblest of American poets. Wallace died at his home in New York City on May 5, 1881, a week after suffering a stroke. He was working on a book to be titled Pleasures of the Beautiful at the time of his death. Interestingly, he wrote a work in 1856, Progress of the United States, Henry Clay, an ode of thine own country sing. Now, who was Henry Clay? Whether or not you are familiar with him, he is a very influential American statesman from the period immediately before the Civil War, born 1777, died 1852. He was an American attorney and statesman who represented Kentucky in both the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives. He was the seventh House Speaker as well as the ninth Secretary of State. He unsuccessfully ran for president in the 1824, 1832, and 1844 elections. He helped found both the National Republican Party and the Whig Party. Long and short of it, he was largely responsible for the Great Compromise. Alongside Daniel Webster and John C. Calhoun, Henry Clay tried to avert what he saw, what they saw, brewing in what ended up being the Civil War. They tried to avert it through compromise, and that delayed it, perhaps, but did not ultimately prevent the Civil War. But it's interesting that William Ross Wallace wrote a book with Henry Clay's name in the title. That's interesting to me. It's interesting to me that Henry Clay was presided over by John Quincy Adams, and he was preceded by John Quincy Adams. It's interesting to me that Henry Clay was born the year after the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the birth of this country. It's interesting to me that this idea of ordered liberty would see this in-between generation, 
who we don't know as well, commented on by Alexis de Tocqueville, who, as a Frenchman, as a French aristocrat, came to America in 1831, about midway between the War for Independence and the Civil War, commenting that the Americans were perhaps not as good of statesmen as many European governments were able to provide, but there was much more interest in national life on the part of Americans. They understood much better how their government worked generally, and because they paid so close attention to the debates that were being held over laws and policies and political philosophy, because they paid so close attention, Americans in 1831 were better stewards of their own businesses, their own homes, their own families, their own communities, because they were more aware of what goes into maintaining these things, what all affects their interests. I would argue that in some sense, in a big way, the progressive model of public education has taken us away from that. Because it followed the Prussian model, what has resulted is we're teaching young people to be governed first and foremost, not necessarily (laughs) to grow up to participate in government. Now you would say, well, no, but that's not true. Civics gets taught. There's all kinds of political engagement. There's too much political engagement. What kind and predicated on what? And oh, by the way, another thing that Alexis de Tocqueville noticed about the character of the American people and the American government is that the American people were very self-consciously Christian. The French Revolution was anti-clerical and wanted to elevate man's reason to the place of deity. But the American War for Independence, on the other hand, very self-consciously said, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. There was this idea that God will judge God has provided. God does not just give authority to the king. God reserves authority to himself to decide to announce what is good and what is evil, what we will do, what we won't do, whether there will be blessings on the one hand for obedience or whether there will be punishments for disobedience. God reserves that to himself. The generation of Americans between the War for Independence and the Civil War believed that generally. And we don't believe that generally anymore because of the progressive model of public education, which increasingly has secularized the American people, seeing as liberating the purging of Christian life and thought from our public schools, from the indoctrination of our children. Our children are being indoctrinated, by the way. And that's true regardless of where they get their education. My children are being indoctrinated. For instance, my children are homeschooled. I wrote the book and this is why we homeschool. I was homeschooled myself. My children are being indoctrinated. Absolutely. So are your kids if your kids are going to the public school. So are your kids if your kids are going to a private school or a Catholic school, or a Christian school. In fact, every education is a matter of indoctrination. The question is, will sound doctrine be 
imparted to children, to young minds? And will that sound doctrine lead to our children having a better future, a brighter tomorrow than we had? Will that doctrine help our children to be free and well-respected and productive and happy? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, those are unalienable rights, according to our founding father's generation. Do we believe that? Or do we scoff at that because radical left influences in our public education have wanted to teach only the history that casts the founding fathers in the worst possible light so that we do away with our constitution, our bill of rights, our separation of powers, our checks and balances. We do away with federalism. We do away with ordered liberty so that we institute communism on the claim that that will be liberating. It won't be. It won't be liberating. There will be orders and there will be a kind of liberty, but you will be free to do what the people's representative, so-called, tells you to do. And what the people's representative tells you to do might be, repeat after me, two plus two equals five, just to let you know that they're in charge. They're in control. They're calling the shots now. On the other hand, alternatively, we have God himself saying, here's the way, walk you in it. We have God himself giving us order because he's a God of order, not a God of chaos. And the context, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul writes that, is orderly worship, not just doing whatever you feel like, not just doing whatever you want. God is a God of order. A good thing can be a bad thing if it is chaotic, because how does that honor God? God is a God of order. Does he want chaos? No, indeed. Now, the flip side is that in liberating ourselves over the past century or so from Christian doctrine being part of childhood education, K through 12, liberating ourselves from Christian doctrine, we have nevertheless gotten some kind of doctrine. That kind of doctrine has been progressive and humanist and more in line with the French Revolution, which was bloody and arbitrary and highly unstable. The kind of doctrine that we've gotten has been very much in keeping with the Prussian Empire, where the big idea was, let's make obedient soldiers and factory workers out of 99 in 100 of these pupils. That's what Frederick the Great wanted, to tell his subjects what to do and for them not to ever say, oh, but this, ah, but this, what about this? Is that moral? Is that good? Is that right? Is that true? He didn't want to be questioned on anything. And so the claim is that this education system is to make us free, to free us from Christian doctrine. And my question would be, and to what? Free to what? You got to serve somebody. Who are you serving? And what is their nature? What is their character? Should you be trusting that person or those people? It's interesting to me that William Ross Wallace didn't write a poem about the government being the hand that rocks the cradle. Who rocks the cradle? The mother. Well, how is it that she rules the world if she's not indoctrinating her child? 
If she's not giving sound doctrine, like King Lemuel's mother did at the end of Proverbs, if she's not giving sound doctrine to her child, how is she ruling the world? And yet the progressives know this. Frederick the Great knew this. Plato in the Republic knew this. Ambitious tyrants have always known this. That if you take children from their parents and you give them their doctrine, then you ultimately will decide their future. And we have the appearance of freedom in this country still. Some places are less free than others, but I hope and pray that in the coming years, we are increasingly really and truly free with regards to education to take the tax dollars that would be spent on our child being educated in the public schools wherever we think our children would get the best education. That's what I want to see. But for those of us who put our kids into the public schools who say, I don't have any other options, there aren't any other good options, I feel a profound sadness and pity, whether because they're lying and they just don't want to do something else, or because they're telling the truth and there's an oppressive quality, there is an enslavement characteristic, which I associate with their having no other option. And where did they get their education? In the public schools, in most cases. And then they have children of their own once they're an adult. And they say, I'm going to send my kids to the public school too. I don't have any other option. I wish I could send my kid to a private school or a Christian school or a Catholic school, or I wish I could homeschool them, but we just can't afford it. And I say, how did it come to be that you couldn't afford this thing? How could it, how could it be <laughs> that you sent your child to public school and you got the education that you did and you're not able to provide for, you don't have the means to provide for your children at a higher level if the education that you got at that public school was so good? Why are you so strapped that you can't even have your wife stay home and educate this child or you can't afford to pay somebody else to teach your child? At a certain point, we have to say enough is enough. And I like what I'm seeing out of states like Florida. I like that Republicans, as they have been since their party here in the U.S. was founded, I like that Republicans are for actual liberty, ordered liberty, saying we support school choice. That's a good thing. It's a good thing when the alternative is, for instance— This report to the community, 2023 Greeley-Evans School District 6. I'm District 6, Greeley-Evans School District 6. No, I'm not (laughs) District 6. I'm not. Who who says that? Who talks like that? I'm District 6. No, no. We are Borg. Prepare to be assimilated. Resistance is futile. No, (laughs) I'm not District 6. My name is Garrett Ashley Mullet. By the way, (laughs) you have a name as well, and it's not District 6, I would just about guarantee. I'm not District 6. I am Garrett, son of Byron and Alice, grandson of Ernest, Ruth, Richard, and Nancy. My wife's name is Lauren. My children are Josiah, Eli, Solomon, Daniel, Evelyn, Enoch, John, Andrew, and we're not quite sure yet whether it's a boy or a girl. We're expecting in November. And yet I flipped through this report to the community yesterday after having the night before watched some videos and read some excerpts and reading some summaries of some engagement with the local school district here in Greeley. 
regarding certain books that are found in the curriculum and in the libraries in this district, which are very explicit in describing sexual activity, violent sexual activity, and sometimes not violent sexual activity, but sexual immorality nonetheless. Bestiality, homosexuality, transgenderism being promoted in books that are in our public school libraries, in our public school curriculum here in Greeley, Colorado. There are some very angry parents, and some of those angry parents, I think, need to work on their communication skills. But I agree with their concern. There are some very angry parents in Greeley. And several of the clips that I saw of the school board for District 6 seem polite as a kind of thin veneer of toleration to the concerns of these parents. Yes, thank you for speaking as a formality. We'll take your concerns under advisement. We will review and we'll get back with you all. And I'll admit, as an outsider, I look at all of this and it's bizarre to me because we homeschool. I don't need to go to the school board and ask for them to change what books are in my children's curriculum. When I want there to be a change in what my kids are reading, here's what I do. I say to my wife, hey, Lauren, can I talk with you for a minute? (laughs) hey, can we talk about what the kids are going to be reading this coming school year? And just to be clear, I am not the kind who says, oh, these books portray sin and folly, and so let's not have our children read them. I'm not that person. But how and why and to what end is critically important. I guarantee you, I absolutely promise you that the books that parents are objecting to which are in the public school libraries and in the county libraries and in the public school curriculum here in Greeley, Colorado, are there for indoctrination. The big question is, what kind? To what end? Why? How are these things being talked about? Why are these things being talked about? What will the outcome of these things being talked about in this way from this source to this audience be? The hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Thanks to American public education, we increasingly suppose that actually public school teachers deserve that credit. Public school administrators are the heroes here. Public school curriculum writers and advisors are the heroes here. And I say, absolutely not. Bunk. That is bunk. That is proof positive. So many people think that is proof positive that we have been taken captive by the left. And it happened a lot longer ago than most of us realize. We're only just realizing it when you pick up a book like It's Perfectly Normal. It's only now dawning on a lot of American parents when they open up the cartoon book that's aimed at middle schoolers and they see a cartoon of two men naked having sex or two women or a man and a woman or whatever combination. It's only now becoming clear to a lot of American parents that something is badly, badly wrong, but it's, it's been badly wrong for quite some time. I would draw your attention to a write-up over at Not the Bee from Harris Rigby titled Misinformation Expert Gives Hilarious List of Red Flag Phrases That Signal Lies and Extremism. I'll play a clip here of a news broadcast highlighting 
experts telling us what misinformation is, just listen for yourself and then I'll respond. That's why experts are using this week to raise awareness and show the importance of knowing the facts as you are scrolling, tapping, and clicking through websites and social media. So we have a few phrases um, that if you see these phrases online, you um, should just take a minute before sharing that um, information. So we call it like, take a pause. Those red flag phrases are, let that sink in. The media won't report this. Make this go viral. Do your own research. And there are no coincidences. When you see some of those phrases um, that are just like triggering you um, to like, somebody's trying to hide information and I need to make sure everybody has this information. Things like that should trigger you. Might I just suggest a few things? One, that we care too much about experts and expert opinion on this, that, and everything. <laughs> it, we, we need experts in our day in part because we assume that only an expert can tell us what to do. Only an expert can give us insight. Only an expert can give us wisdom. And this idea that you would trust the experts, it really has a inverse statement that goes unsaid most of the time, which is that you shouldn't trust anybody who's not an expert. It's as though the folks who are constantly banging the drum of trusting experts in education, in politics, in science, in planning your family, raising children. It's as though the experts are the only ones who know anything. They're the only ones who understand anything. If you're not an expert, then you couldn't possibly, no, you couldn't possibly come to a meaningful conclusion. You need a scientist. You need an expert. You need an approved opinion. So here we have a list of phrases, and they are rather innocuous in my view, most of them. Now, a couple of them, sure, would I have some pause? Yes. Do I need an expert to tell me to have some pause? No. Let that sink in. You know, it could just be that if the experts know so much, and if you and I are supposed to be getting good information, that it actually will be something that we have to process. That's all that's meant by let that sink in. Hey, you know what? Just process that for a little bit. Think about this. Isn't That's another way you could say let that sink in. Think about this for yourself. Don't just take the so-called expert opinion for granted. Experts disagree, by the way. And how do you break ties between competing mutually exclusive testimony from experts. Oh, also, how did the experts become experts? Were the experts ever told at a certain point as they were becoming experts from being a regular human to being an expert? Did they ever have to stop and absorb that information and think about the ramifications for themselves or what made them experts in the first place? Is expert really just a matter of credentials, just a matter of who has a little certificate, who has permission. The media won't report this. Well, you know what? Let's be honest. There are a lot of things that the media doesn't report, 
And there's a list of things that the media very obviously avoids reporting and is slow to report. And when they do report on, they will report in a very manipulative way. That's a fact. Now, if somebody says the media won't report this, I say, well, there needs to be a little bit more to it than just that the media won't report it. It could be that the media won't report this because it's true and the powerful people who own the corporate media don't want that truth to be known because it would hurt their business model. It would hurt the reelection chances of their favored politicians. That's a possibility. That's a possible reason why the media wouldn't report a particular thing because it would hurt their typical mainstream establishment character. It would hurt the brand that pays so much to advertise on their channel. It would hurt the political party that they want to win. That's a possibility. That is. But it's also a possibility that the media won't report something because it's not true. Or it's possible that the media won't report something and also that it just so happens to not be true. So you need more than just the media won't report this to go on. Just like politicians can be corrupt, just like a common person can be corrupt, a person in media isn't magically of a different character and type just by virtue of them being in the media. Sometimes agendas are tainted by desired outcomes. The conclusions are foregone and the story is rushed before additional facts come in so as to promote a certain narrative, so as to get a certain outcome or prevent a certain outcome. Make this go viral. Now that one does give me some pause because I think, well, the the big idea shouldn't be to have your content be viral. And I say that as somebody who creates content. I would never say, please make my podcast go viral because a virus is <laughs> not a good thing, right? Viruses are not so good. You don't want a virus. You don't want a virus in your computer. It's going to make your computer not work so good. And you don't personally, as a biological life form, want to get a virus, be sick. Now, I don't think viral content is necessarily the answer. Even if the thing you're saying is true, maybe there's a better phrase for that. But also, too, similar to the corporate media being affected by greed or selfish ambition or fear of loss, the fear of losing control, the fear of getting in trouble, individuals can be gripped by all those things. And so I say, if this is really, really true and it's really, really important, then you don't need to tell people to make something go viral. And you probably shouldn't. Do your own research, though. Ah, man, I, 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 I just, I have a really hard time taking seriously an expert saying that do your own research should be a red flag that you are being given misinformation. I mean, what could possibly be more antithetical to misinformation, disinformation, malinformation than encouraging people really, truly to do their own research? And oh, by the way, if the experts are not doing their own research, then why are they experts? What makes them the expert? Are they the expert or are they just a spokesperson for the so-called experts? What is an expert anyways? There are no coincidences. Um, well, as a matter of fact, 
<laughs> that's a theological position. That actually, really, truly is accurate. God is not a God of chaos and confusion. He's a God of order and of peace and of a universe that he put in order. There are laws to the physical universe. There are laws to the moral universe. Now, just because I would say there are no coincidences or when a lot of things just happen to happen at the same time or around the same time or in sequence, and they could be causes, but somebody's saying, oh, no, they're absolutely not. But they really aren't giving a convincing explanation for why that is. And Occam's razor would lead us to say that X, Y, and Z are related to A, and there might be additional letters that we don't have, but they're definitely connected somehow based on what we know. If not, give us a better explanation. I think it's okay to say, do your own research. Let what I just told you sink in. The media won't report this. I would definitely just skip, make this go viral. Don't say that. Don't say that. But let's check and see if this is coincidental. Does this make the best sense of the evidence that we have, that these things are related? They are connected. Now, for instance, for an example, let's run through some examples of how I would, I think, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I would apply these kinds of statements or the sentiments behind them in an even-handed way. There's some reporting over at the Daily Wire about something Donald Trump just recently said, reporting by Tim Pierce that former President Donald Trump took a roundabout shot at Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis on Monday, that is yesterday, over his six-week abortion ban, saying some pro-life activists think it's too strict. Well, you know what? Do your own research. If you do your own research and you dig a little bit deeper, what you'll find is that actually since the beginning of the pro-life movement in this country, there have always been people who identify themselves as pro-life, but they are for a wide array of exceptions for abortion, making abortion legal in certain cases. Like, for instance, you will find people who identify as pro-life, but they'll say we should make an exception in the case of rape or incest. It should be okay to abort a child if the child was conceived in rape or due to incest. That should be okay. And I say, if you do your own research, and the media is not exactly going to report on that because the media by and large is pushing the progressive agenda, the agenda of the left. The media is by and large pro-choice or more to the point pro-abortion. That's not me spreading misinformation, malinformation, disinformation. And as a matter of fact, it's not a coincidence that Trump is criticizing DeSantis about the six-week abortion ban when it just so happens that DeSantis is expected to run against Trump. Now, tell me, how can we have such clarity in realizing the personal ambition of Donald Trump is connected to his criticism of DeSantis at this moment on this issue? How can we be so clear on that? And it's absolutely undeniable. But if we start talking about what the left is doing, what the left is up to, or what bureaucrats in our own government are up to, what they're doing, what they've been doing, Statements made, actions taken, actions not taken, partiality, for instance. 
then you're told, ah, no, 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 no. The media doesn't report that, so it's not true. It's not real. That's not really happening. I I consider make this go viral to be as concerning, perhaps, as this so-called expert highlighted by the Channel 9 News clip that I played for you. But I also find as bad or worse the statement, trust the expert or trust the science or the science is settled. Those are trigger words. Those are trigger phrases. When I hear somebody say the science is settled or trust the experts, I think, ooh, you're trying to play fast and loose here. You're making an argument from authority. That's not an actual reasoned argument. It might be a fact that you have some experts who agree with you on this thing or who are saying this thing that you're saying, but that doesn't mean that it's true. If they're saying it because it's true, well, then I should be able to do my own research and find why they make that claim or why they take that position, why they make that recommendation. I should be able to find that these things do go together when I do my own research. So here's a quote from Trump going beyond the headline, going deeper than the headline. Quote, for 50 years, they've been trying to get rid of Roe v. Wade. I was able to do it. Nobody else could have done it but me. And I was able to do it by nominating three excellent judges on the justices of the Supreme Court. What it did more than anything else is it gave us a tremendous power of negotiation, which we didn't have, the pro-life movement, a tremendous power of negotiation. Now the pro-life movement has the power to to negotiate a deal that's acceptable for them, end quote. Acceptable for the pro-life movement, negotiate a deal. Why are we talking about negotiating a deal if this is actually murder? I don't need an expert to tell me that the logically consistent, morally consistent position would be if abortion is murder and that's why we're opposed to it, there would be something immoral about negotiating how many unborn children you're allowed to murder. I don't need an expert to tell me whether that's logically consistent. And actually, I trust less and less every expert who's going to get up and try and have that cake and eat it too. Oh, yes. Well, let's grant that it's abortion that we're debating and that abortion is murder. And also, let's talk about how many abortions you will allow in this country. And I say, how about let's talk about how many murders of adults we're going to allow in this country? How many murders of children from birth to the age of 18 are we going to allow legally in this country? How many murders of 20 to 60-year-olds are we going to allow? It's perverse. I don't need an expert to inform me on that. It's self-evident. And if the experts are saying something different, then I say, maybe I should do my own research on how it is that they became an expert in the first place and why I should trust them. Just because they claim that they're an expert, what is that? What if I claim to be an expert? What if you claim to be an expert? Does that mean it all cancels out? Now we're allowed to do our own research. Now we're allowed to think about these things for ourselves, let things sink in when we hear them, read them, find them to be true. For another example, here's a report from Joseph McKinnon over at The Blaze. French President Macron defends painting depicting child rape. So I see that, and if I were to say, let that sink in, I think it would be something of a throwaway phrase, but now I want to say it all the more because some expert is being trotted out with a Los Angeles poster on the wall behind her here to tell us about 
how we need to be very, very on guard against misinformation, malinformation, disinformation online. It's either true or it's not that there's a very controversial painting hanging in the Paris Museum, Palais de Tokyo. It's either true or it's not that this painting is the product of Swiss agitpropist Miriam Kahn. It's either true or it's not, as the reporting by Joseph McKinnon claims, that this painting is titled F Abstraction and that it depicts a faceless adult orally raping a childlike figure. It's either true that that is, in fact, the controversy in France, or it's not true. But if I say it's true that that is the fact, and then some expert says, well, no, not quite. There's a lot of nuance here. There's a lot of context that you're not including. So fact check, false. You're going to get a seven-day suspension from social media. And also your interest rates on your loans are going to go up. What is that? A little bit of bright news, happy news, going back to the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Pew Research reports May 10th, 2023, Alan Cooperman writes, most U.S. parents pass along their religion and politics to their children. And that might come as a surprise. And also the statistics might not mean what we think that they mean. There might be some more research that we have to do to understand what these statistics mean and what they don't necessarily mean. Nevertheless, here's the reporting. This may be surprising considering the parents are more likely to prioritize the transmission of their religious views than their political views. In a fall survey by the center, 35% of U.S. parents said it was extremely or very important that their kids grow up to share their religious views, while fewer than half as many, 16%, said the same about their political views. Notably, parents saw both religious and political transmission as much less important than passing along other values, such as being honest and ethical, hardworking, and ambitious. Still, people in some religious groups did place a high priority on raising their kids to carry on their faith. For example, 70% of white born-again or evangelical Protestant parents said it was extremely or very important for their children to hold similar religious beliefs compared with just 8% of religiously unaffiliated parents. And of course, that makes sense. There's nothing that is self-evidently false or suspicious about that. In fact, you would expect that 100% of born-again or evangelical Protestant parents would say that it's extremely or very important for their children to hold similar religious beliefs. You would expect that that number would be 100%. So I look at this and I say, why isn't it 100% of people who claim to be Christians who also say that it's extremely important that their children be Christians? Why isn't this number 100%? If you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man or woman comes to the Father except through him, what do you mean by religious beliefs? I suppose that's an important question that could be lurking in the 30%. You could have 30% of professing evangelical Protestants saying, well, I just mean, you know, we don't have to agree about baptism or we don't have to agree about spiritual gifts or we just, we don't have to agree about what is the ideal church polity. We don't have to agree about the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. We can disagree about eschatology. 
You know, if that's what's meant, then I say, okay, well, you know, there's a lot that can be hiding in that 30%. But there's also the possibility that 30% of people who claim to be Christians have thrown in the towel on their kids becoming Christians. And for whatever reasons, they just don't figure that's something worth investing themselves in. And I just think to myself, well, then maybe 30% of, if that's what it is, right? If they, they don't care if their kids are even Christians or not, if that's what it is, then how can you even say that you're a lover of God yourself? How can you even say that you are following Christ yourself? How can you even say that you love your children if it's not extremely important or very important for your child to be a Christian? Maybe they were listening to the experts. Maybe the particular experts that those 30% of evangelical Protestant Christian parents were listening to were telling them it's really not all that important if your kids are Christians. That's a possibility. That could be. How will we know? Pew Research is very well respected. How will we know unless the hand that rocks the cradle also picks up a book and also does a little bit more digging, does a little bit more research? You know, my wife will send me links and she'll talk with me about what she's teaching our kids or how they're doing in school or things that she's reading. And I'll send her things that I'm reading. And we talk about these things back and forth in part because sometimes we are trying to process what it is that we've read. I want to share with my wife what it is that I've read, but I also want to process what it is that I've read. If it's true, then I want to let that sink in. I want to do my own research. I don't want to defer to experts all the time. God gave me a brain. God gave my wife a brain. God gave my children brains. And how do you become an expert anyway? These people know that the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. And that's why they try and substitute filial love and devotion and transpose it onto the state or the state's appointed representatives and mouthpieces, spokespeople. But here, just one last one last story for this podcast episode, and then I got to wrap it up. A piece from The American Reformer, written by Scott Yainer, May 9th, 2023, Defending the Family in Liquid Modernity. Scott Yainer writes, Human mastery over nature exercised technologically is how human beings experience progress, better medical care to extend life, cars that prevent crashes and protect us from their effects, more market opportunity for all. We rarely think of how the sweetness of progress comes with corresponding bitter costs and what that fact teaches about the human condition. Modern feminism expresses the dilemma of progress. On one hand, women have more schooling and degrees today than ever before, more political and economic rights, and more liberation from unchosen roles. On the other, we no longer really know what a woman is and how other beings, call them men, should relate to women. Mary Harrington's Feminism Against Progress sees the benefits, counts the costs, tells us how we got here, and gives some advice on muddling through the bitters. No institution, including the church, is immune from feminism's influence, so no one can ignore its deeply personal wounds. Now, I say this, and I bring this up in part because even in regards to experts in the church, experts in theology, experts in pastoral care, experts in theology, experts in ecclesiology and church history, yes, even all of those people, even your favorite Christian recording artists, your favorite Christian celebrities, yes, even they 
can be influenced in very subtle ways to have a bias in favor of the zeitgeist, the spirit of this age. Even they can be tempted by the desire for unjust gain. Why would we read, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit in the New Testament if it wasn't a temptation? If you weren't going to anyways, why would you need to be told, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit? Well, the answer is obvious, and I don't need an expert to tell me about that. The answer is that we are often and maybe even daily tempted to do lots of things from selfish ambition or vain conceit. And the more famous somebody is, the more the prospect of their business model is contingent on saying what people want to hear and being rewarded thereby, the more careful we need to be in how we receive, how we hear, how we believe, how we understand what it is that they tell us. Do your own research. I'm going to do my own research. I'm not going to just uncritically unthinkingly defer to even the most highly praised, highly respected influence in the church, certainly no less, no less, only all the more do I hold with some level of appropriate distrust experts outside the church, but I'm not going to delegate to somebody else the responsibility of watching over my wife and my children and guarding their hearts their minds, shepherding them as a father, as a husband. I'm not going to defer to somebody else in that. Now, if somebody points out to me, hey, Garrett, you're mistaken about this, and here's how, and here's why, and I think you missed this thing, or I think you're wrong, and here's what God's Word says about that, well, then I want to hear them absolutely. But even there, I'm not going to just take their word for it. So wrapping up, how do we summarize everything I've just talked about? We started off in Numbers chapter 3. We talked about William Ross Wallace's poem. We talked about Henry Clay. We talked about MDM, misinformation, disinformation, malinformation. Let's go back to Numbers 3, and let's just say it's as simple as this. The more God would call us to represent him, the more there should be order in our thinking, in our speaking, in our lives. And that order is not joyless. In fact, that order is what makes it possible to have the fullest of joy, to enjoy life. In our next episode, I'll be talking about Stephen Fry's book, Mythos, which I just finished up. And I'll explain more of why the Christian who is seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness, who is studying to show himself an approved workman who need not be ashamed who is believing and not doubting when he asks for wisdom, who is being holy by God's grace to the best of his abilities because God is holy, how the Christian is uniquely placed to have more pleasure and joy and happiness, not just for longer but forever, than even the best the Greeks and the Romans produced ever could have dreamt of. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I've got to run, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.